Hello, and welcome to the second chapter. I'm your host, Kristen Duffy, and I'm here to remind you that it's never too late to start your next chapter and to share stories of interesting and insightful women who may just inspire you in your current chapter. This week, I'm speaking with Lynn Yowers. Lynn has been a writer for most of her career, but decided to go back for a creative writing master's degree some 30 years after graduating with an education degree. But Lynn's biggest change may have been something that was less to do with writing and career and more to do with self and worth. Lynn and I do discuss childhood abuse, which may be upsetting to some listeners. As always, I try to discuss important topics like these with careful consideration and with the feelings of my guest and my listeners at heart. She would just say, no, people like us don't do that. For me, it planted a seed of determination and a little bit of anger. What do you mean it's not for people? Who are people like us? Is it because Mm -hmm. we're poor? Is it because we live in the country? I didn't even know quite what she meant by people like us. I had these dreams, but mum, and she wasn't being nasty about it at all. I think she was just trying to perhaps minimise disappointment for me. But ironically, paradoxically, it did the opposite. It actually kind of fired me up. Hi, Lynn. Thank you for joining me on the second chapter. How are you? I'm really well, Kristen. Thank you for having me. I think listeners will catch it right away. But based on your accent, we are in a very different part of the world. (laughs) Yes, I've completely forgotten that while we're having our pre-recorded chat. Yes, I'm in Australia. And you ask me about spring coming here, but tell me about what's going on there, season-wise, (laughs) weather-wise. We are descending into Melbourne's winter, and they're always long and cold and wet, and I don't like it. But I don't think I'll ever move from Melbourne, so I guess there are things that compensate for the winter weather. I think summer, spring and autumn here are beautiful, and I guess when it's winter, it's firesides and movies and dinners with friends and things like that. Oh, that's very romantic though. So you can't complain about that either. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing wrong with that. No, nothing wrong with that. I have to tell you, I didn't say this before we started recording, but I am on baby watch because my sister is actively in labor right now. (laughs) So you may be the first person to find out that I'm a new, I'm an auntie again. (laughs) It's her first baby. Oh, that's fantastic. I'm going to tell you, and I don't think it'll matter. Oh, I don't know. that Yesterday, my daughter told me she's pregnant. So I'm about to become a grandmother, which is hard to believe, but truly wonderful. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, Babies in the you air too. today. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about you. I found this sentence in um, one of the many articles about you, and I thought it was a really interesting insight into the sort of beginnings of you. I grew up in rural Australia and attended a secondary school in the 1970s. Gender stereotyping of girls in that place and time meant I was all but forced to, inverted commas, choose shorthand and typing when I was 14. Yes. I kind of love talking about how sometimes our lives have been shaped as women, especially women over 35, etc., by this particular gender stereotyping that you're talking about. It gives a lot of clues. Rural Australia, 1970s, the typing shorthand thing. But the typing in shorthand has served you well. It has. And I often laugh and think no one would have guessed, including me back then, that learning how to touch type was going to set me up as in a career as a writer. So both as a fiction writer now, but as originally 
in the mid-80s, I became a technical writer and then I became a technical writer and a writer of a whole lot of other things, which are sometimes loosely referred to as grey literature, which is awful. But it's <laughs> all the things also. that <laughs> all the things that you might read from instruction sheets to reports on health or schools or something like that that the government might issue to the public, or all sorts of things. And because you don't get a chance to put action and dialogue in. It's called grey literature. Anyway, I've made a very successful career out of grey writing and editing grey literature, and I was and being able to touch type and type while I'm talking to somebody else or type while I'm reading something else and type very quickly and accurately has just been fantastic. And I still use shorthand occasionally. I'm taking notes. These are things I did not learn to do. And I have to say, I was right on the cusp of that moment of people were starting to use computers, but we weren't on email all the time. And I was so snotty about it. I was like, I'm not going to learn how to type for the same gender stereotyping reasons that we've mentioned. And now I I type well in a looking at the keyboard most of the time kind of way. Yeah, yeah. Which is fine. But yeah, look, I'm smug a little bit, if I'm going to be honest. I'm a little bit smug about my typing. You should be because I want to look out the window and type and I can't do it. So before all of this of career stuff that you mentioned, though, there was a little bit more that seems what could be gender stereotyping, that you won a scholarship to go study teaching and that you were, I'm going to say forced, you were, you had to commit to teach after that. Yes. So as a Victorian government for many years, and I think it was really a very brilliant scheme introduced what were called studentships, which was which meant you would go off to uni. They would pay you to go to uni. So I got a fortnightly check, as it was in those days, which covered I lived in the halls of residence at Monash Uni and it covered all of my accommodation and expenses and I bought my own. My parents just never paid a cent for me once I left home and uh, thanks to that scholarship. But the flip side of it was that when you'd finished your teaching degree, you had to go to wherever they sent you and you had to teach with them for three years. Look, in retrospect, I'm very happy that all of that happened to me. But I did actually also win at the end of my last year of high school a position at the Australian National University to study law arts. And it was that was granted to me not on my year 12 results but on my all of the results during my high school years and I guess references or something written by my teachers. I don't know. I can't remember. But I remember I was on the front page of the local newspaper mm-hmm. <laughs> on this free ride to study arts law at ANU and I thought that was fantastic and then maybe segueing a little bit into my home life, my parents basically said I couldn't go, that I wasn't going to be a lawyer and also that Canberra was too far away and it's about what's well, about a six-hour drive. There are so many things that I feel like the decisions that we get to make and the decisions maybe our parents get to make and the decisions are kind of, that are forced on us when we are at an age that Maybe maybe we're not ready to make big decisions, but at the same time, I don't know. I feel like I made some decisions for myself that I wish my parents would have said, have you thought about this other thing? 
it's such a strange time in life, which is why I also love talking about these changes later in life, because I think we're just assumed that we're going to have all these things happen at 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. And that's going to shape the rest of our life. And why can't we make these changes later when we're better equipped to either say, I don't have to pay attention to my parents or I'm just wiser? Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that it's not necessarily about your parents making decisions or not making decisions for you because both of those can have some negative consequences maybe. But I think it's about parents guiding you in Mm -hmm. your decision-making So if my parents had sat down and we'd worked through the pros and cons of me moving to Canberra or becoming a lawyer or being closer to home or, I don't know, or any parent around any decision, once their children start to want to make decisions for themselves, especially around big life decisions like what they're going to study and where they're going to live and maybe who they're going to date and anything else like that, that you... um, you, you should be there to guide them, not force them to do something or stop them from doing something. I don't know. I just made that up. No, but I exactly think that's true because I'm saying, I think in my case, I didn't have enough guidance because it was even, I don't know, I think I was 11 when I had a test result that I had to make a decision on. And I ended up going against what I'd done my whole life creatively to go to a smart kids, quote unquote, school. But what I really loved doing was all the creative stuff. And I had that as an option as well. So I think what you're saying about sitting down and saying, what are the pros and cons? How will this affect your life? But then also now that we are grown (laughs) adults making our own decisions, you can't go back to being 11 or to 18 or whatever, but we can make changes that maybe we weren't guided on earlier in life. Yeah. And I think, as you say, we have a lot more life experience and we can look back and assess situations and the decisions we've made or that were made for us and think, oh, it could have been like this. And the fact that I'm 40, 50, 60, 70, obviously some things are not possible as you get to certain ages, but lots of things still are possible. And if you're able to make a decision and you're in a situation, if you're fortunate enough to be able to perhaps because of finance or time or family situations, pursue something that you really love and that you weren't able to earlier in your life, then yeah, it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter how old you are. Exactly. That's what I love to talk about. <laughs> yeah. So you did end up teaching seven and a half-ish years, I think. Yes. But right. way back in the day, you looked at a newspaper ad. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> And I just say it like that because you said, remember those, but I know that um, it was a newspaper ad that maybe changed a few things in your life. Yeah. So I was teaching and I enjoyed teaching and I still have a lot of friends from my teaching days, including a couple of students. And, and there's a really interesting story about one of them in particular. And, but I started thinking, maybe I want to do something else. And basically when you're a teacher, all you can do is become a senior teacher and then you can become a vice principal and then you become a principal and there are careers in education department and things like that but I have to admit I never thought about them. Anyway I thought I think I want to try something different and but I had no idea what and so I was looking one Saturday in the Melbourne age and that was in the days when there were pages and pages of classified 
ads in the newspaper, including job ads. And I was just looking through them and I saw this tiny little ad that said they wanted someone who could write. And I thought, oh, I can do that. And who knew about computers. So this was in the mid-1980s. There weren't a lot of computers, really. And But the schools that I'd been working in had got computers in, mainly used them for maths and science. But I had somehow, I don't know, weaseled my way into learning because I thought, this looks pretty amazing. And I'd learned how to do word processing. And then I was teaching word processing at night school. And I was also teaching year 11. That makes them the second last year of high school. I was also teaching year 11 students how to program. I did not know how to program, write programs. I just kept one chapter ahead in the text. <laughs> so I did that. It did mean that I knew about computers and I knew all the acronyms and things like that. Anyway, I applied for this job and I got it. And so I started working as a technical writer. And it was a very small company, but it grew. And I think I was employee number six. And I worked, I learned this, I learned how to write clearly and I learned how to write and rewrite. So I learned about the process of writing and that and the importance, at least or especially in technical writing, the importance of accuracy and completeness and making things really crystal clear and strong and sharp and precise. And I, I have to admit, I really loved it. <laughs> and then after about 18 months there, I thought, I reckon I could do this without the company. I could freelance and make a bit more money and also write, broaden the range of things that I was writing instead of just writing computer manuals. And we had gone into online help. I think that was very primitive days of online help. And so I wanted to write other things as well. And I was just turning 30, I think. And I thought, now, if I don't do it now, if I don't become a freelance writer now, if I don't become a writer now when I'm 30, for God's <laughs> sake, it will never happen. And so I started my own business. And that was, yeah, that had a lot of challenges. It was, there were a lot of up and downs, but it was mostly good. And uh, yeah, it was very different to working for the education department first and very different to working for a small company in the IT sector. Um, but again, I loved that and that grew. I went into a partnership with someone else and we ended up employing people and we had sales staff and office staff and editors and writers and trainers and it was terrific. We had our clients were predominantly blue chip organisations and government departments we just found a little niche and filled it. And that we had competitors, but I don't know, we, it was really good. It was terrific. You're talking mid-80s and then a little beyond that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like kind of a bold move. I feel like now if somebody says they're a freelancer or they're going to go out on their own kind of thing, it's, it's so common. We're used to hearing about people saying, mm -hmm. oh, I could do this myself. I'm just going to be a consultant or something. But mm -hmm. that feels like a pretty bold move at that point especially because I know it started very small and got very successful. I don't know. Maybe it was bold or brave. I didn't think that at the time. I just thought, I think I could do this by myself. And there is, especially in the IT area that there was and still is, but perhaps particularly in that day and age, there were a lot of contractors 
And not that I wanted to con- go contracting, but I had met lots of people who were self-employed, but they would hold six to 12 months or two or three year contracts with an organisation like a telecommunications organisation or a bank or insurance company or something like that. So they, it was like they were employees, but they were actually self-employed. So I had met a lot of them and I just thought, oh yeah, I think I could do the same thing, but I'm going to be writing things instead of writing programs. I'll be writing documents. And I waited until I, I did get a, a job as in a work to do with a small software company and it was about four weeks worth of work. And I thought, oh, that's enough. That'll do. And I <laughs> <I'm> <laughs> drove to work and quit. And uh, I don't know. And then I, I, look, I was very lucky. I just managed to get, I got that job. And then just before that one finished, my next door neighbor was working weirdly for the education department. And he said, oh, we need someone to write a user manual for the school bus. (laughs) Yeah, the school bus system that operates in Victoria. And I said, yeah, I can do that. So I got that little job and then I got another one and it just kept, just it was all word of mouth and a lot of repeat business and it just kind of ballooned and I think I was just in the right place at the right time with a set of skills that people I don't think people realized they needed or how it would help their business so it really was that thing about being at the right place at the right time and I said I really loved it (laughs) but you did end up starting again as sort of your own business Yes, that business got, well, it was never large. It was never a big name or anything, but we had lots of employees and an office and all the expenses that come with that. And my business partner, who's a fair bit older than me, she decided that she didn't want to do that anymore. She wanted to completely change her life and sell her house and travel around the world for a few years, which is what she did. And we sold the business. It's a bit trickier than that. But anyway, I ended up back home by myself again in terms of my career. And I thought, that's all right. I'll just reinvent myself and do the same thing, start off just doing freelancing. And and I had a lot of contacts. So it was very easy second time around. And look, I have to admit it was very easy first time. (laughs) I was just really lucky. That's Yeah. Right place, right time, right set of skills. So it was good. And then I've been doing that ever since. So that's about 24 years ago that I started by myself again. And so that's what I do. And occasionally I subcontract people if I get big jobs or sometimes there might, I might be a, a client might work in a very particular field that I really know nothing about and I might bring in someone with that expertise. But having said that, I write about things I know nothing about as it is so it's an interesting an interesting field to work in. So I remember one day someone was interviewing me for some work they wanted me to do and it was in manufacturing and, and I was telling them all the different things I had done and what my skills were and all of that sort of thing. And she said towards the end of the meeting, and what about manufacturing? She said, what background have you got in manufacturing? And I said, oh, I've got none, absolutely none. <laughs> she said, what? She said, but how will you be able to write about manufacturing if you've if you haven't got any experience in it. And I said, look, not quite in this tone of voice, but I said, I have, and this is true, edited the state budget and I have never in my life studied accounting, politics or economics. I've written things for 
general practitioners have zero health study. I said, you already, you, I said, you have hundreds of people behind us here who know about manufacturing but can't write. So you have the knowledge, but you don't have the skill to mm-hmm. package the information together, work out what this group of people need and the best way of putting it together for them and writing it quickly and making sure it's well-structured and clear and precise and concise and compelling and all that kind of thing. And I said, so I can come in and get the information from the people you already have, your experts, and then I can write the documents for you. And she said, oh, oh." she said, yeah. She said, we don't need another manufacturing expert. We need a writer. Exactly. So, yeah, I've written about all sorts of things I technically know nothing about. So if I was listening right now, I'd be like, okay, so we've heard this kind of change that happened around 30 and it's a success story. Where's the podcast going? Why <laughs> Why is Lynn on this podcast talking about change after 35? But 30 years, I think, if my maths are correct, mm-hmm. after your first diploma, you're already a writer. You're already writing about things you knew nothing about, but you went back to study creative writing. Why not just write? What what led to going back to school all these years later? All right. So I have always wanted to be a writer. And by that, when I was a child and so on, I meant author. And I f- fell into the technical writing and then this sort of grey writing, business writing. And I've always enjoyed it, but I always felt I'm not actually what I've really always, all my life wanted to be a writer. So I've always loved books and I've always loved language and linguistics and all of that kind of thing, absolutely adore them. And a friend of mine had gone back to uni and I thought, I think that's what I need to do. I felt like I was missing something and I I don't mean sort of money or travelling the world or anything like that, although all of those things would be and would have been wonderful. But I just uh, felt that I'm just going to say intellectually I wasn't quite fully nourished. Anyway, my friend had gone back to uni and studied something that I was definitely not interested in, but he he did put that idea, the seed, that I could go back to uni. So I thought, yeah, okay, yeah, I'll do a master's in literature because I studied literature when I was doing my Bachelor of Education. And yeah, that's what I'm going to do because I love books and I love talking about books and all of that kind of thing. And while I was looking through University of Melbourne's website, looking for their Masters of Literature, I literally stumbled across their Masters in Creative Writing. And then I just had this light bulb moment where I thought, oh my God, that is what I need to do. That is me. I need to do Creative Writing. And so that's it. Filled out the form online, sent it in. They came back and said, yeah, come in for a meeting. Can't believe it's weird when you think about that in this day and age. But anyway, went in for a meeting and they looked at my Bachelor of Education. It was so old. They literally said that to me. This is so old. We can't work out, can't look at what you did. The institution doesn't exist anymore (laughs) where I did my degree. (laughs) And uh, we're not going to let you do a master's in case you fail. And not fail as in not pass, but that you don't enjoy it. You don't, you Stand what's required of you, you might not have the skills required to write a thesis. We don't know and we can't tell from your very old bachelor degree. 
So they said, you can do a postgraduate diploma instead. And I said, yeah, that's fine. If it's in creative writing, I actually don't care. I just want to study creative writing. So I did that. And at that point, I was single mum and still running my own business. I had a couple of teenagers. And I thought, it's not like I can head off to uni every day. So I did one subject a semester. And they were, they were running classes at, in, in the evenings, so I could do that. So I think it took me two and a half years to finish something like that, maybe three years, and I loved every single minute of it. And and then I enrolled in my master's and loved every single minute of that, did my thesis, started writing the novel that became The Silent Listener and made friends with people who were published authors, met publishers and agents, and some of the lecturers were really well-known Australian authors. And I thought, oh, I'm, I've come home. This is where I need to be. It was just wonderful. It's so funny because I often tell people that I'm interviewing that people come to me at the right time or they say something that really applies to me as well. And I've been talking to someone or I've been talking to a lot of people about this potential of a master's degree that's following along from some of the producing I'm doing. And so many people are like, but why do you need to study it? Why do you need to spend the money? Why do you need to spend the time? And all of the things you're saying are exactly what my answer is. First of all, I love learning. I could just, I could go through the manuals, like you were saying, going through and going, (laughs) oh, that's me. I'm like, oh, that's me. Oh, that's me. I love that. Because I just love to study and learn. But I also think the meeting of the people the feeling at home, the finding what you really love about a particular subject is something that, yeah, I could go online and learn things. I could do maybe if I was lucky enough to get one internships or have mentors or things. But when you're describing it, I'm just like, that is exactly why I would consider all the, the time out, the money, the things that it would cost me personally, financially, because there's so much more than just, oh, I have a piece of paper now that says I'm qualified to do something. Yeah, it was never the piece of paper. It was, if they had said you have to go back and do another undergraduate degree, I would have said, okay, if I I can study creative writing, that's what I'll do. That's what I want. It's not a piece of paper. And yeah, I literally, I loved every single minute of it and I threw myself into it. And I think there's a lot to be said for if you're paying for it yourself, so it's not your parents paying for it or even the government paying for it, which is a very rare thing, of course, these days, you really appreciate the opportunities that you have. And yeah, I, I'd like to think I really threw myself into it, but I just got so much out of it. It was just truly amazing. And then out of that, I made one of the friends that I made in the Masters said to me one day after we'd both finished the Masters, you need to apply for these novel writing masterclasses that I've been going to. I said, oh, yeah, what are they? Anyway, she put me in touch with this person who runs these masterclasses in novel writing and I applied for that. It's not just like a you don't just enrol in it like you might for bread baking or to learn French or something like that. You actually have to demonstrate that you're serious about your writing and that you've made a good start and that it's, I guess, the criteria around quality as well. Anyway, I applied for that and I got into that. And that was life-changing because I really did meet people who were in every stage of the publication process from 
I've just started my novel and I've got yeah, sort of 20,000 words written or something right through to people who were writing their second novel after having had one published and varying degrees of success. One woman is a Stella Prize winner. So in Australia, the Stella Prize is the most prestigious award a female writer can win. And so I just met all of these people who were writing and very serious about writing in terms of I'm going to do, this is going to happen. And I again met publishers, we could pitch to publishers and agents. And I think I also realised how much hard work I had in front of me if I was actually going to finish this novel. And I thought, yeah, I'm approaching 60. (laughs) If I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? (laughs) And my kids were that much older, of course, and weren't really relying on me. And I thought, that's it. I'm going to finish this novel if it's the last thing that I do and I'm going to make sure it's really good and or the best that I can do. And very long story, I managed to get an agent, which is a nice little story in itself because I sent her my manuscript, told her about it, and she said to me, get back to me when you've finished it, cut to three years later. So I've finished my novel and I wrote to her and she said, send it. and Sometime later, she wrote back and the email went, Dear Lynn, oh, full stop, my full stop, goodness, full stop. I started reading your manuscript on the plane last night. She was on the way to Perth Writers Festival. She said, I couldn't put it down. I just love it. I want to sign you up. Please don't talk to anyone else. (laughs) What are you working on next? As soon as I get back to Melbourne, let's get together. (laughs) And here's a draft contract for you to look at. I love that. Okay, so that was one of my questions. I just have on my like on my question list, just one agent? Because I feel like you hear these stories of I applied to millions of agents and sent it to mm. thousands of publishers. And I know that this was not just I graduated, sent it to an agent. There was masterclasses in between. Mm, I think you said mm. that you'd started what became the silent listener way back when you were studying. So it wasn't mm-hmm. just I got an agent, but the fact that <laughs> you did just get yeah. an agent. <laughs> I know, I know. And I've got friends who are still trying to get agents and it's got harder, of course, in the last few years, partly because of COVID, because it's so much, everything's so much more hard work to get over the last few years to for agents to contact publishers in Australia and overseas and writers' festivals and book fairs and things like that were stopped and all of that kind of thing. But so I was lucky in that respect. Again, when I wrote to her, she said, perfect timing. I'm looking for something to read, so send it to me now. So I did. And uh, and then she, a, few, a couple of weeks or a few weeks later, she said, I'm taking it to Sydney Writers Festival where I'm going to meet a whole lot of publishers and I'll be spruiking the silent listener. And I thought, oh, well, that's good. And then she got back from there and she said, I've got seven publishers who are interested. <laughs> This is, okay, this is like every writer's dream story. Again, let me just make it clear that it was 35 years in the making or something. <laughs> and then also, while she did say, I've got seven publishers interested, so she said, send me the latest version. And we did, and she sent it out to all seven publishers. And Penguin got back very quickly and said, we're really interested. So she had she gave the publishers a deadline date to get back to them. And I'm thinking, oh, this is so different because if I'd written to publishers, I would have said, please, thank you, grovel, grovel. If you ever yeah. happen 
to one day have a tiny little bit of time. If you could just read the first paragraph, that would be wonderful sort of thing. But Jacinta sent it out saying, right, here it is. You need to get back to me by this date. <laughs> oh, it's just I such like a her. different. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's, I guess all agents are like that. I don't know. Anyway, Penguin got back fairly quickly, wanted to talk to me. I had a very lovely, long conversation with Bev Cousins, who's originally from England, working for Penguin, and now she's been in Australia for quite a long time. She's absolutely lovely. We got on like a house on fire, and she was already talking about a publication schedule. We hadn't signed any contract. She hadn't even taken it to acquisitions, but she'd read it and loved it. And then, so I thought, wow, this is fantastic. I thought, oh, gee. And then when the other six publishers all come back, I'm going to be in a bidding war. But one by one, all the other publishers rejected it for all sorts of reasons. And a couple of them didn't like parts of it. But there were some interesting things like one said, it's not for me because the story is too close to home and I don't think I could deal with this subject matter as an editor and publisher. So they, all the others rejected it one by one for a variety of reasons. and. I remember writing to Jacinta one day and saying after she'd sent me yet another rejection, lovely but still rejection letter from another publisher, I said, I'm so glad Penguin got in first and said yes because if all of these other ones had got in first saying no, I would have been curled up in the fetal position. Yeah. <laughs> but Penguin had already said yes and, and it was a two-book deal and there were royalties in advance and I just thought, oh, my life has changed and it has. It absolutely has changed. So I do want to talk about The Silent Listener. First of all, from somebody who is writing gray literature, <laughs> this is definitely not what you would call gray literature. I can understand why it was, oh my goodness, I couldn't put it down. Because from the very first line, it is something that just grips you and, and explodes pretty much. <laughs> Oh, that's great. Can I quote you? <laughs> yes, you may. <laughs> I think I do. Yes, the word explodes is in the first line. And I think that's appropriate. It definitely does not start quietly. No, it doesn't. And I think there are some quiet moments in there, but it is fairly intense, perhaps might be the right word. And it does depict some family trauma and abuse and violence. So that's difficult for some people, I know, but I think for me it was very important that it touched on that subject matter and explored the ramifications of that, not just the short-term ramifications of abuse and psychological trauma, but the long-term ramifications of that. So it's got, it's got three timelines. Main two are when Joy, the protagonist, is about um, 11 or 12 years old, and then sort of 20-odd years later when she comes back to the farm to nurse her father who's dying and she decides to take revenge on what he did to her and her siblings 20 or so years ago. Yeah, I can definitely understand why one of the publishers did say it was hard reading because it, there, there is, you get so much from Joy as a child. I don't know, as someone who had a father that was very fear-inspiring, put it that way, for me. Mm. I definitely was reading it with my heart in my throat sometimes. And I know that 
as you mentioned, some difficulties with your own parents growing up. This wasn't a story that was completely fictionalized. The story was fiction, but you drew from your own experience. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So the way I talk about it is is I say that the farm that is described in the, or is the center setting of the novel is the farm that I grew up on down to very minute details like the dam and an old water tank that we used to use as a sort of big rubbish bin because we didn't have rubbish collection because we were in a remote country area and and a wall hanging on over the kitchen table that reads Christ is the head of this house the unseen guest at every meal the silent listener to every conversation and as a child that really spoke I think it's the original big brother yeah, I, I just got a chill just hearing those yeah. words again because yeah, it just it did make me think, yeah, that what this idea of a God who's always watching and you can never yeah. do anything without being seen and you're so bad if you, oh. yeah. yeah, and I think it was meant to be reassuring, but as you said, it's like there's someone watching your every movement and also we know from church, they can see inside your mind as well. You can't even think things without God or Jesus knowing. It's It was pretty awful. And then my father was a religious zealot, very mainstream Presbyterian church that we attended. There wasn't anything particularly weird as such about the church and dad's beliefs, but he yeah ruled our house with fear and some violence, but to the outside world, he was a much-loved, highly respected elder of the church, member of the garden club, musician, on every committee you could possibly think of, and people just thought he was terrific, but behind closed doors with his family, he was anything but. So I always had this idea that I wanted to write not my story, and it isn't my story, but I wanted to write about a girl who lived through that emotional experience that I had. And then I built this fictional story around her, about a, another little girl who goes missing. And, and that's a cold case 20 years later. And so I wanted yeah, to write about her family. And I wanted to not just write about her when she was 11 or 12 and the experience of a child living in that sort of house, but I wanted to talk about what effect that would have on someone as far into the future as 20 or 30 years afterwards. And it does. Joy returns and and things unfold from there. I don't want to give too much away. <laughs> it's literary suspense. We need the suspense. But there is definitely a lot of suspense. and. I think also still building on it being drawn from your own experiences. It's interesting because I read that people want to talk to you, that they found the book cathartic and not something, I'm going to guess it's not something you expected necessarily, but yeah, the fact that people have come to you and said, thank you, and really want to talk to you about what the book took them through. Yeah, I have had far more conversations either face-to-face or by email or by Instagram, far more than I ever thought I would. And people coming up to me at writers' festivals or other sort of literary events and including 
very sadly friends who I've known for some time I had coffee with after they'd read the book and they wanted to have coffee and talk about it because they said I had the same sort of childhood. And in fact, one of my friends said, while I was reading that book, I just kept thinking it was like you were a fly on the wall. How does she know this happened? How does she know this happened? Men and women and of varying ages and backgrounds and because we know abuse does not restrict itself to one particular demographic or gender or ethnicity or religion or anything like that. It cuts across all of those boundaries. So I've been really moved and it was not something I was prepared for, but it has been really moving. And I think also, interestingly, I get quite outraged on their behalf that their parents dared to treat them like that. And I don't, weirdly, I don't have the same outrage about my parents. Mm. Unless perhaps I'm thinking about them with my brothers and I, I get outraged about that. But when I look back at me, one, there's a lot of distance in terms of time and both my parents have died. Once my father died, one of the things my brothers and I said was sort of one of the best days of our lives. And that's a really awful thing to say. But even when we were in our 40s, he um he still had this kind of strange control over us, even though we all left home when we were 17 and we all moved not as far away as we could, although one of my brothers did. He moved to the very northwest of Australia. He said, I've got as far away from Dad as I can without leaving the country. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it's just a, an interesting thing that, yeah, I'm a bit more outraged for other people because I just think this is it for me. This was my childhood. I can't do anything about it. I lived through it. I survived. And now I'm, I'm really happy in many spheres of my life. I feel there's a distance between the girl that experienced that and me, but I still feel very angry for other people who had similar childhoods. I do wonder too, because we talk about how we started with the gender stereotyping and how things like yeah. that have changed and how we are bolder about making choices in our lives, maybe later in life and things. But I do wonder if all these people that are talking to you are saying, I've never told anyone this before. Oh, yeah, that's the other thing. That it's so difficult to talk about. Hopefully, in the same way that gender stereotyping and things that we spoke about is becoming less and less of a thing. Hopefully, now that we're talking more in general, less people will be hiding this kind of secret of violence in childhood and things like that. Yeah, so I don't know what the situation is in England or America, but in Australia, look, and I imagine it's the same, maybe about 25, maybe even, maybe more like 30, 35 years ago, we introduced mandatory reporting. So if you're a person in authority, like a teacher or a doctor or a scoutmaster or a swimming teacher or something like that, and you suspect that something is happening with a child, either because of their emotional behaviour or, or things like bruising or scarring or injuries and so on, if you suspect that there's something going on, you must report it. Mm -hmm. So it's mandatory. You cannot say, oh, I'll just wait and see. I'll see what happens or I'll have a talk to the parents. You actually are legally obliged to report it. So I would like to think that that goes some way to, if not preventing it, maybe preventing ongoing instances of it. We read every day. We know this. We read every day in papers, on the, in the news, women especially, but women and children who are, and, and men are too sometimes, 
abused physically, emotionally, the coercive control, financial abuse, all of those sorts of things. And in Australia about four years ago, we just had this really atrocious incident where a man burnt in a car his ex-partner and their three children. And when the media were talking to the neighbours and all that kind of thing, people were saying he was a good bloke. And I thought it's still this thing that behind closed doors, lots of people have different personas and that despite all of the things about that we have so much more about parenting and nurturing children and all of that kind of thing and it's illegal to physically abuse your children and there's mandatory reporting and all that kind of thing, but it still goes on. And I don't have any specific answers, but it's still a tragedy that occurs far too often. One thing that the car thing reminded me of something I've posted on the second chapter Instagram page where they're trying to make it illegal to rules about um, reporting violence against a domestic partner because so often it is man kills wife after she cheats, blah, 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 or jealous rage after, or he was a good guy, even though he... Yes! Those kind of things are so damaging because it's constantly putting the victim or victim shaming. You've just killed someone. Yeah, you're not a good bloke. Yeah, you're not a good bloke. Yeah, there's a woman in Australia, I feel terrible because I can't remember her name, and she does things like, post on Instagram and Twitter and so on, she'll take a headline like that and she'll change it and Mm -hmm. instead of she'll change it to what it should be. And so there's a lot of talk about the language and the way these sorts of incidents are portrayed in the media in Australia. And one of the things is why didn't if he was like this, why didn't she leave him? And of course the question should be, why was he abusing her? And it's very subtle how I think sometimes how it is always victim shaming or she shouldn't have done this or done that or she should have left him. Why didn't she leave him? And people have said that about Gwen, Joy's mother, in a sort of oblique way, my mother. But it's it's difficult if you don't have family and you don't have access to income and you don't have a job and you don't have support around you or you don't speak English and you don't have there can be a whole range of factors. It isn't just that straightforward, oh my partner is abusing me or my partner is not giving me money to spend, oh, I'm going to leave. The fear is not just amongst the child. Fear can paralyze you in so many ways. Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. But to maybe put a more positive light on things, I I do think things are changing. I think people are more aware and I look at younger generations and my children, for example, and their friends who are young adults and I think there's a lot more respect for women and a lot more women Women are stronger and more vocal about their rights and what they expect from a relationship. And uh, so hopefully with every passing year or every passing generation, it will improve, sort of hope. I didn't necessarily mean to go on such a tangent about it, but I do think it's such an important thing to talk about. So I'm glad we did. And, mm. and it makes for such an interesting beginning and it's such an interesting seed for where you went with the book. You've taken obviously a lot of emotional growth and been able to turn it into something really brilliant. Oh, thank you. That's lovely. Yeah. Look, sometimes I say to people when things do get a bit heavy, say, look, out of that childhood has come 
yeah, what I hope is a great book and a great experience for me. And I remember while I was writing the book, I saw a cartoon. And it was just a little single-frame cartoon of a woman who was signing books in a bookshop and a pile of her books were stacked up. And the title of her book was My Miserable Life. <laughs> and standing in front of her getting their book signed were people you realise are her parents. And one of them says, oh, if we'd known you were going to grow up to be a writer, we'd have been a lot nicer to you. <laughs> Yeah, I like it. (laughs) Yeah, it's been fodder. Sounds awful, but it has been. Gave me a very rich vein of material to mine and and then mess around with because, yeah, as you said, the book is entirely fictional, but it has emotional truth. So you mentioned a two-book deal. Are you allowed to tell me what you're doing now? (laughs) What's next? Well, my... I, one day I had an idea for a book and I sent it to Penguin while we were still editing The Silent Listener. And my publisher, wonderful Bev, wrote back and said, this is absolutely fantastic. I'd written the first chapter. She said, this is absolutely fantastic, Lynn, but it can't be your second book because your contract says you are going to write, and I quote, another compelling literary psychological thriller. <laughs> so I thought, all right, yeah, no, that that's, and we had a bit of a chat about it. And she said, what you want to do is build up your readership, so you want to give them this, something mm-hmm. similar so they know, yeah, I know what I'm getting when I buy one of her books. Anyway, I had a bit of a think and I am writing another psychological thriller. This one's also based on a true story, but not from my life, but from that of a friend who grew up in America when she was 15. I'm going to say this. She got herself pregnant which oh. is a really interesting concept. And just by herself. Just apparently, yes. <laughs> she got herself pregnant, which meant that she was scum of the earth and she was sent off to a home for unmarried mothers and forced to adopt her child, like thousands and thousands of women in America, England, Australia, Ireland, Canada, New Zealand, and probably other parts of the world, but have to confess I've only researched what's happened in those sort of main countries. And and a few things that she told me about her time there absolutely blew me away. And I can't tell you what they are because they're all the seeds for twists in the story. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to know anyway. I want to know. <laughs> so it's, yeah, this, yeah. And again, I've got multiple time threads and multiple points of view, multiple characters doing different things and everything is going to come together at the end and merge and at the end it's going to be explosive (laughs) i will take that when 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 (laughs) coming out the second half of next year i don't know don't know the situation in the uk in terms of publishing and timelines and so on but hopefully it will get to into the uk as well it sounds not like gray literature it is not great literature. No, it is not. And it's been interesting. I've, I was never really one to read a lot of thrillers or, or crime, but one of my friends is a psychological thriller author, and I'd read two or three of his books, and I thought, yeah, he's doing pretty well. And I thought, yeah, maybe I'll try that. And then, and now I know quite a few others in Australia, and they're all such wonderful people, and we often laugh about the fact that these people who are writing crime and psychological thrillers are the loveliest, fun-loving people. <laughs> <laughs> There's just nothing murderous or bloodthirsty about them. 
<laughs> and so that's really nice side benefit of being published and being in that category of crime slash psychological thriller. Met met just some most amazing, wonderful writers, but also across genres as well. We all just say the Australian writing community is just the best. It's just we all support one another. We celebrate people's successes. We shout it from the rooftops. We go to each other's launches and events and conversations, and then we go out eating and drinking and talking and laughing afterwards, and it's just been just absolutely fantastic. So, Lynn, let me ask you, one Mm. of my favourites, did you bring a quote for me today? I did. Of course I did. I've done something a little bit different because I know most people quote a, a very inspirational and moving quote from someone who's famous and very successful. And I have got a few of those that I refer to and think about from time to time. And I've actually got one on my wall that's a postcard that says, and I'm quickly going to look at that, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. And that's by Benjamin Franklin. But that's not the one I want to talk about. The one I want to talk about is something that my mother said. And I was trying to do something like, I can't actually remember what, but I know it was something like I wanted to try out for an elite netball squad or I wanted to audition for a play or was something like that and my mum who was really nice but did live under this sort of fearful domination of my father said to me no that's not for people like us and she said it a few times in different circumstances she would just say no people like us don't do that or that won't work for people like us and I just thought I know it's almost like a negative quote, but for me, it was planted a seed of determination and a little bit of anger and, or an, and maybe even curiosity. What do you mean it's not for people? Who are people like us? Is it because mm-hmm. we're poor? Is it because we live in the country? Is it because, I don't know, we live in this strange house where religion and fear are everywhere? I didn't even know quite what she meant by people like us, but I thought, no, but I want to be a writer. I want, and you know, there was a stage where I wanted to be a lawyer and I wanted to be an antique dealer. And I had these dreams, but mum, and she wasn't being nasty about it at all. She was just trying to think almost say, look, it's not going to happen for you because we're not that kind of person. We're not rich. We don't move in certain circles. We've never been to university, all of those kinds of things. And I think she was just trying to perhaps minimise disappointment for me. But ironically, paradoxically, it did the opposite. It actually kind of fired me up and I thought, why can't I be a writer? Why can't I go to uni? Why can't I be successful and live a happy, I don't mean successful in terms of money, but live a happy, contented life with family and music and nice food and bushwalks or whatever it is that I want to do. And so that's the quote that, kind of lives with me, (laughs) for better or worse, that I don't want to be people like us, however mum was defining it. And I don't want anybody else to be. I don't want people to be, I guess, suppressed by abstract concepts of restrictions and impossibilities that we could never rise above our station. Perhaps that's maybe what she was getting at. Can I do the other one as well, Kristen? Yes, of course. Oh, okay. So another one from a poet friend of mine who, like some of the people who've spoken to me about their childhoods for decades, I never ever spoke to anyone about my childhood and no one ever knew. 
But I did have a friend or still do have a friend who is a poet and I don't know, we must have been having a really deep and meaningful one day or something and I told him about it. And then we would talk about it and uh, and things, this sort of idea that I had that I wasn't very good at things because that's what our father always told us, that we would never succeed and things like pride cometh before a fall so you could never be proud of any of your achievements and anyway it was all thanks to God and all of this kind of thing and I seemed to be a bit stuck in that and he my friend Ken said to me one day don't let him win twice and he said when you were at home and you were a little girl and you had no choice there was nowhere to go and there was no one to say anything to and you had to live with him and you had to live under that rule of fear then you didn't have a choice. And yes, he was the winner, so to speak. He won every battle. But you now you don't live with him. Now you can live the way he tried to make you live and he wins again. He wins twice. Or you can live the life you want to live. And he won when you were a child because you had no choice. But now you have a choice and you can win. And I just thought, oh, that is fantastic. It's so, so true. I think that makes me want to loop back a little bit because on paper, it seems like you have been a writer for a very long time. The big change, maybe the second chapter change would have come with you going back to school, getting your master's degree, et cetera, becoming a fiction novelist. But before we started recording, you mentioned about an emotional change. And I think that's probably even more impactful. Yeah, because... I've listened to other episodes of your podcast and I always think, oh, these people have made very dramatic changes in their life. Like we were talking about from teacher to astronaut, (laughs) those sorts of big, obvious changes. And I haven't really, I went to uni and I became a teacher and then I became a writer, but I was an English teacher. And so going off to writing was no big, amazing shift. And then I moved from technical writing to fiction writing. So that's not anything amazing. But I think for me, I've had this huge emotional change second chapter because when I left home, I was very shy. I had no concept of self-worth. I didn't know how to express my own opinion. I didn't think that my own opinions were worth expressing and I didn't know how to make decisions for myself because my father had made it very clear that My opinion was worthless and I couldn't make decisions for myself because I would make the wrong decisions. When I left home at 17 to go to uni, I was, I sometimes say, I I felt like I was like a little piece of wet cardboard. I just felt I had nothing of substance and it's taken me a very long time to get the courage to do things like go back to uni, raise my kids, maybe continue running my business. And then most particularly, though, to write this novel and to keep going and keep going, even when sometimes I'd read sections and think, oh, that's crap. But every, I know now everybody does that. But now I'm kind of in a good, good place because the novel has done really well and it's about, but literally as we speak, being made into a film and it's won an award and been shortlisted for several other awards and all these really amazing things have happened. So not just because of that, but more because of the people I've met in my life who've been really wonderful to me and have given me the confidence to do things and to believe in myself. So for me, my second chapter has been having that sense of self-worth and value 
and confidence that I just did not have as a child. I think the thing is that I like who I am now. And from, I'm going to say for decades, I did not. And I think that was predominantly due to my father. And so my second chapter has been just to like myself. I think that's probably the best second chapter of all. I've never quite thought it through exactly like that until this second. So thank you. Thank you, because I think a lot of people will recognize that. And hopefully people that maybe haven't gotten to the point where they can feel that kind of confidence, maybe they'll hear that. And that'll just remind them that taking something throughout their life maybe is letting somebody win twice. Yeah, yeah. And it's look, I would hate people to think that I now think that I'm wonderful. It's not that at all. It's not. No, don't even say it. I'm going to cut you off. I'm going to stop no, you right there. Okay. Because pride, pride, pride does not come before a fall. You're allowed to be proud. You've been yeah, successful. Yeah. You have a wonderful uh, yeah. book. And you, and from talking to you, I know that you're wonderful. So stop. Oh. <laughs> That's all you're allowed to say on that. <laughs> before we stop recording, you said there was an interesting story about one of your students that was a whole story in and of itself. If I'm curious, other people will be curious. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when I was 21 and a first-year out teacher in this country town in Victoria, I was the form teacher of a woman whose name is Deanne Weir, and she was 14. I was her form teacher, and she was brilliant, absolutely, totally brilliant. Long story, we became friends. We were in a few plays together in amateur productions and things like that. Very long story short, she's now a very wealthy media entrepreneur and she has worldwide businesses of, and she's just absolutely amazing. And she acquired the screen adaptation rights for The Silent Listener. So she is taking <laughs> my, my book into a film or her production company, which is called Storied. And they've done some great things. And uh, yeah, and it's just this beautiful full circle because I met her when she was 14. She met me when I was this naive, shy, little 21-year-old first-year-out teacher. And, uh, and we've forged this really lovely friendship. And now, yeah, her production company is... Well, of course, these things, it might not ever be made into film, but we have the first draft of the screenplay. They have a few other things set up and happening, so we all have our fingers crossed. But I just think that's just... A great story. These friendships and connections sometimes, yeah, come full circle. That is, that's a brilliant story. I love that. The circle of life. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And she's been very inspirational for me. She is an absolute success story. And yeah, she's made a lot of money, but she has a foundation and she gives back a lot of money and she's a very vocal and forthright feminist. And she does a lot of work for women in lots of spheres and yeah total inspiration I think for every woman and came from a very working class background and does all these wonderful things now for humanity and particularly girls and women. All my fingers are crossed because I want to see this as a film. (laughs) (laughs) And my fingers are crossed too. I'm sure. On that, Lynn, I will just say thank you so much for coming, sharing your story. I highly recommend The Silent Listener to anyone who is listening. (laughs) And yeah, take care. Best of luck with the next novel. 
Yes, thank you, Kristen. I really love your podcast. I just love how inspiring it is. And we listen to other people's stories and think that woman's amazing or that woman's gone through so many challenges and she's still doing what she can and succeeding and being strong and inspiring other women and so on. So for me to be on this podcast is a great honour and delight. So thank you. Thank you. That is such a lovely thing to say. You said you were going to quote me on something I said about the book. You are now being quoted as well. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. One last thing. At the beginning, I mentioned I was on Baby Watch. My sister did not have the baby while we were recording the podcast, but literally moments after I'd hung up. Slater Jack Andrew Huckabee was born. 13th of April, I became an auntie yet again, 8.41 a.m., He was six pounds, 11 ounces, and baby and mom are happy and healthy. So um, I just wanted to let all my listeners know. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on Instagram, and sign up for the Second Chapter newsletter. The Second Chapter is brought to you by Slackline Productions, a production company dedicated to redressing the balance of women's stories being told and who's telling them with a specific focus on women 35 plus. You can find us at thesecondchapterpodcast.com and slacklineproductions.co.uk. Thanks again.